Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. <laughs> That's for you, Dan. I know you always like when I say my name weird. So uh, no, I'm, I'm excited to be here, man. It's nice to record just the two of us again. It's been a little while. It is. So, it uh, is. It's, it's been a while. It's been a while. It's nice to shake the rust off. And it's also nice to give a shout out to some new patrons that we got this month. So thank you so much to everyone who responded to my desperate call for support on our last episode. It really means a lot. And this is we we're now able to start budgeting things for the new year and what we want to work on. And it's because we have support from patrons. So to that end, uh, welcome to our May patron cohort, which is Will Howe, Ian Aiello, Zan, Weed, Krista Brown, and our good friend Tim Kulin. And also a special shout out to Eric Gordon, who's been a patron of ours for a long time. He just upped his pledge amount. Um, That's amazing. And that's something that you can also do if you're looking to get more involved and, you know, have access to uh, not access, delete that and have, you know, a more direct input into what we do and how to, you know, help us fund things in the future. If you want to up your pledge amount, that's easy to do through Patreon. And we really, really, really appreciate it because you're awesome. And we're going to work together and get stuff done. And we are here today to return to our Anatomy of a Scene series with Kay meeting Deckard in 2049. Indeed. And I'm curious because this was your idea. I mean, there's so much in each scene uh, in 2049. There's so much you can break down and talk about and process. What is it for you about this scene? I'm going to let you lead the way a little bit. This is really something. Whole town was something. One time. Forget your troubles. See a show. Gamble a little. Win some money, lose some money. I mean, money seemed like candy. You like whiskey? I got millions of bottles of whiskey. Well, there's many things about it. I think, for one thing, in the context of 2049, it's a really clear re-engagement with the first movie, and it says a lot of very specific and interesting things about the first movie. So I think that's one angle that's cool to look at. It's also a huge tonal shift from the rest of 2049 before it, in some ways literally and aesthetically, right? We have a totally different color palette. We have a totally different architectural palette being drawn from, Where whereas the rest of the film in Los Angeles was very, you know, proto-brutalist and um, almost post-architectural. The world in Las Vegas is like opulent and over the top and ornate and Baroque. But it's also, I think, an interesting link with the first film because, of course, we have the exchange about Treasure Island when uh, they meet each other. And that, of course, calls back to the deleted scene with Holden from the first movie. But also, more generally, some of the themes of abandonment and what happens when treasure no longer holds value 
and uh, and also what it means to recognize somebody because mm. in the context of Treasure Island, that's really the undercurrent there. So that being said, uh, I think there's kind of a lot to unpack with this and you know, figured it would be a, a cool entry in this series that I know we both enjoy doing so much. I agree. I agree. There's so there is a lot happening with Kay walking to this building, how it it references the first film, how the dynamic between Kay and Rachel, or I'm sorry, the dynamic between Kay and Deckard mirror in some ways the dynamic between Rachel and Deckard when Rachel first meets Deckard. So it's it's a fascinating scene. I'm I'm excited to talk about it. Mightn't happen to have a piece of cheese about you now. Would you, boy? Uh, it also presents answers in the forms of questions, which then become answers in the forms of more questions, I think, about the first movie. Because, of course, it wasn't a mystery that Harrison Ford had filmed scenes for this, right? So we all knew he was going to be in it somehow. And we'd even seen the trailer footage and we'd seen press photos that showed an aged Deckard, right? So regardless, you know, if if you want to, you look at the Decorep thing through this, that presents a lot of questions about his identity, if that's what you're looking for. But it also, I think, presents a lot of questions about who Deckard became after the first movie, right? We leave 2019 with Deckard in full-on hero mode, finally, right? He's been activated, like he's found something within himself due to his experiences in the first movie that have energized him and given him a reason to push forward. And then when we see him in 2049, he is adrift on this ocean of orange hues in the top floor of a, you know, beautiful Las Vegas tower that nobody's visited in decades in an irradiated wasteland. And just the the distance between those things is so is so interesting. Other parallels, you know, every time we see Deckard in the first movie, other than the theatrical cuts ending, we see him in darkness for one thing right like it's it's dark the entire time we see him surrounded by people and objects and clutter even the the you know the climactic scenes that take place in uh the bradbury building like even those sequences are there's it's just full of visual stuff right the frame is just full of objects and things with light values etc and we don't we never get a chance to see deckard outside of that so it seems it's it's almost disorienting a little bit when we see him in 2049, and it's just in the context of these open vistas that are suffused with this strange light, and it's almost like encouraging us to look at Deckard differently as a character, mm. I think. Mm. Um, and the, the main reason why I brought this up tonight for conversation really was about saying tonight, we're recording this in the morning, was because of the you know Dream of Cheese uh, Treasure Island reference, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and just to kind of kick that off for a second... 2049 does interesting things with literature and subtext, right? So you have, of course, Nabokov's uh, Pale Fire, which is the formation of the baseline test. It's a book that Joy throws out because she says that Kate doesn't like it, but it's sort of his book. It's sitting on his table. Um, And Pale Fire presents us with a very different modernist literary text to view the film through and to view Kay's character through. Treasure Island is a much more, you know, I mean, it's it's a much older book in general. It's from a century or, you know, whatever, before Nabokov was writing uh, Pale Fire. But it's also just a totally different story. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's an adventure tale that has under it a lot of more mature themes than a lot of adventure tales have. So one of the, the, the big themes in this movie is seen through the character of Ben Gunn, 
who has been marooned on the island for three years and has fallen to subsisting on only berries and, you know, wild animals and uh, has not had contact with another person of his, you know, ethnic background the entire time. He's really, he just feels like totally out of his element and he has lost sight of who he used to be. And uh, not to say that you need to be around people of your ethnic group, but for, for him as an Englishman in this time period, that was a really disorienting experience, right? And uh, in addition to that, he hasn't had any any you know of his comfort foods from home, and one of those things is cheese. And so he's become this he's become obsessed with this idea of having access to cheese again. It's become this this driving thing for him. And so when we meet him, when the protagonist of Treasure Island meets him, that's the first question Ben Gunn has is, do you have any cheese with you? Because I really, really want some. And then he goes on to say how strange it is to see a white man. And it's this very interesting, you know, moment where he is, he has been sitting adrift, on actually, basically, literally adrift on an island in that case, and then with nothing around him that reminds him of home. And all of a sudden, home walks into this environment. And the only thing he can think to say is, do you have any cheese on you? And I think, uh, so the reason why I'm bringing this up is because in 2049, it's interesting that that's what Deckard pivots to instantly, right? And he's doing it as a joke, right? As like a little literary joke in in a snarky way, because he has had nothing to do but read for the last 35 years, right? But also knowing what's behind that line and knowing that, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's saying, I haven't seen another person this entire time. You could look at it as it's Deckard saying, I haven't seen another replicant this entire time, if that's what you want to look at it through. I don't think we need to. But it's him recognizing some semblance of his past, right? And I think what it really is, is a Blade Runner. He's seeing a Blade Runner again, and he's transported back 35 years to what he was and looking at a reflection of himself. And then what plays out from there is this very interesting study in reflections and echoes and what time does to people. And I think it's just a cool lens to look at this movie through. Is it real? I don't know. Ask him. When I think about Deckard and remember meeting him in 2049 at this point, Deckard is a lot like Ripley is in Alien 3, where he's not himself anymore. He's lost. He's a, the nihilistic version of Deckard. He's, he, di- he lost the hope that we saw in his eyes at the end, which is very devastating. So when we meet this Deckard in 2049, we're not meeting the same Deckard who left 2019. And I think for some people who've had issue with 2049, this is jarring because Deckard isn't recognizable to them. Number one, in some ways, because of their costume, which I don't buy. But I also think in large, in large part, it's because he's not the Deckard we, we left. He's not the Deckard with the hope and uh, the drive that the whole film of 2019 took to, to get him to kind of wake back up into his life. And so we're meeting him again in a similar situation where at the end of you know 2019 Deckard goes into the Bradbury building to hunt um Roy Batty and then you see Kay walking into this building essentially going to hunt Deckard so there's this parallel happening between films which I think is really really interesting um but of course the major difference is, is that Kay is not there to kill Deckard. Kay is there to learn from Deckard, but of course, Deckard has been living in such 
I don't know, desperation. And he's been hiding all of his life post-Rachel. So 35 years-ish, he's been hiding. Um, so people wouldn't find him. Um, so naturally, he's going to be very wary and very cautious. Um, but it takes a little, it took a little bit, even for me, as much as I love the film, and I'm sure for other people, to get their heads around this Deckard. Um, because this is not the Deckard that we remember. And we've had, if you look at other films, um, well, like Alien 3, which people had a lot of hard time with, like Star Wars The Last Jedi, where you meet this character again, who was this supposed to be this kind of godhead who they've they've kind of rejected their their life. They've pulled way into themselves and they're they're kind of just waiting to die. And that's and that's a tricky thing to do with 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 characters like Deckard. I think fortunately for Deckard, he is complicated. He was complicated at the at the end of he was never this protagonist. He was never this hero. Um, I would even push back with t on you a little bit and say he's he kind of became hero-like at the end. I don't think he became hero-like. I think he just decided my life matters, and my life matters now because I have love. So he maybe he became the hero of his own story. He saved himself, which is heroic for sure. And and saved Rachel, I think. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. But I, yeah, I, and what I mean by that just. To clarify, I, it's not necessarily that I think what he's doing is heroic, but in term, in terms of like film theory, what he's doing is he's assuming the role of like the heroic role of the movie, but not until it basically is over with. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Got her name? Officer KD6-3. That's not a name. That's a serial number. All right. Joe. What do you want, Joe? I want to ask you some questions. Like what? Like what was her name? The mother of your child. What was she like? You two live here together? Too many questions. I had your job. I was good at it. It was simpler then. Why are you making it complicated? Why don't you just answer the question? What question? I didn't figure you as one for bullshit. What's her name? So I feel like meeting this Deckard now, it, it it's challenging for us. It's challenging for us as an audience. It's challenging for our expectations. But I think, I think largely that that Denis and the writers pulled this off, um, because Deckard was so nebulous in the in the first film. He was kind of so all over the place and a little bit of an antagonist. By the time we reach him again, he's back to that antagonist role again. He's back to that antagonist role, and he's back to that not. He's not really nice to be around. And he was kind of like that in the first film. So, but at the same time, it's devastating to see him in that place. It's devastating as a viewer, as someone who's been on this journey with him since 2019, to see him in this place where he's lost everything. Um, so it's a testament to the writers trusting their process and the actors, Harrison Ford, trusting that Denis and everyone else knew what they were doing to, to bring us this Deckard. So this was a great entry point into who he is. Yeah, I mean, not only is he back to his semi-antagonistic nature, but he's literally punching our hero in the face <laughs> the entire time, right? He's really difficult. And I love how true that is to his character because he's a difficult person. He's never this virtuous, you know, perfect embodiment of doing the right thing. Like, he's always somebody who has needed to be cajoled a bit into doing good. And then when he does, he really does do good. But it takes him a while to get there. 
And I think part of that is just Harrison Ford as an actor and the types of roles that he gravitates towards and the types of characters he portrays. They're often like that, right? They're not swashbuckling heroes until they kind of accidentally become one. And then they're all of a sudden, you know, more heroic. Um, I also think it's interesting, you know, they have this exchange shortly after the cheese thing where they're talking about what Kay is doing here, Mm -hmm. right? Deckard is like, you know, what are you doing here? And Kay says, I heard the piano, which of course, to me speaks of, that's a reference to to the first movie. It's trying to help us to kind of cue into that because one of Deckard's most poignant scenes, of course, is Memories of Green in the first film where he's playing the piano. So we're sort of, we're feeling the memory of that Deckard in that moment. And the first thing Deckard says instantly is, don't lie to me, you're a cop, you know? Like I, I know, I know what you are. You can't get away with lying about that. You didn't find yourself in the middle of Las Vegas because you heard a, a high C and a piano three hundred miles to the west, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So, so again, it's it's like we're we're cued as an audience to look at Deckard for that moment back through the lens of like, oh, that was him playing the piano thirty five years ago, and then Deckard being like, cut the bullshit. Like we're not here for you know emotion, right? And we also get a glimpse into his life, and this is a great example of the economy of storytelling in twenty forty nine. There is no exposition at all. In fact, Deckard is pushing against Kay trying to bring exposition out of him. He doesn't give him anything, right? Like we we were able to get a lot by observing the environment, right? By seeing the apiary outside, by seeing all the trip wires, by seeing the way that Deckard has ensconced himself, by seeing how much alcohol there is that's empty, by seeing this dog who we don't even know if it's real or not because he never answers the question. Like all of these wonderful moments that could have been exposition dumps in a lesser film, they just sort of float by us and we just play catch up with Kay. So we, we don't leave his headspace. We're just there observing the environment with him. And that continues all the way through the whole fight scene, which I think is brilliant, where they're fighting uh, you know, in front of the holographic representations of mid 20th century iconic pop culture icons. That, that whole sequence is just, it's beautiful. It's phantasmagoric. It's interesting. It's sem- semi-nostalgic. And it is further reinforcing this idea that Deckard is still not someone to be fucked with, but he's pretty tired, right? And I love how they end by him saying, like, I like the song. You want to keep this up? Let's we just go get a drink, you know? I love how they just get to a place where Deckard is just like, eh, okay, that's enough. Mm. Um, For all of the walls that he's put up around himself, literally literally and figuratively, he's really tired, you know? And he had to do something decades earlier that just has basically ransacked his life. Mm. And now he's sitting in the after effects of that. Yeah. And there's no empathy in him at this point. Like there is, he is so steely. Like there's, we imbue Kay with a lot of our own emotion, but at the same time, what's happening here in the, in the dynamic is Kay is talking to a man who might ostensibly be his father at this point. That's what he believes. This is my father. This is, this is where, and of course, with Deckard, Deckard knows he didn't have a, a, a boy. He knows Kay's not his son. But the dynamic of expectation going on here where Kay is looking at this man like, oh, my God, this is this is what could, what was impossible for me is now possible. Not only was I probably born, here is my father. This just shouldn't be happening. Um, and so you have that imbalance of this emotional weight from Kay with this complete resolve and disconnection from from Deckard. So what he ends up doing is he's beating up his son in these moments. Um, we don't know for sure what's happening, but because of the way the story is being told, this man is beating up his son. He doesn't give a shit. He wants him out. Um, again, it's this flipping of the script between 2019 and 2049, where 
there's a replicant and Deckard in the same building and they're kind of after each other. Um, but Deckard's in the, the baddie role where Deckard's like, he wants to get rid of him. He wants to kill him or, or get him out or something. Whereas K essentially like baddie wants to live. He wants to know who he is so he can live a better life. It's just really interesting to knowing these things and then watching that scene again and again and realizing that at this moment in time, this man's father is assaulting him. Um, and yeah, it, it's pretty interesting. And the first time, as you point out, the first time we see the movie, that's also what we think is happening because mm. we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. So so what we're watching, and and we're never taken out of Kay's viewpoint, like I was saying, because we're never given those you know movie shorthand exposition things. Like We're basically just experiencing this through him. The first time we see it, we don't know anything else about his background. And by this point in the movie, we are all pretty convinced that we haven't figured out because we all want the story to go a certain way, whether we are conscious of it or not. We want that resolution. We want that hero's journey. We want this central character to find some peace and to find some answers. Because, you know, when you watch a procedural movie like this, even one that's as nonlinear and as sophisticated as a Blade Runner film, what you're really seeing is, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing problems presented that have resolution to them. And that resolution can be either concrete or abstract, right? And Blade Runner it presents abstract resolutions to complex problems. Mm -hmm. So we're watching the movie wanting to get resolution. We're, we're wanting to find out the story of Kay. We're wanting to find an answer to what was what the horse was all about. We want to find out what these memories mean. We want to find out where we're going. And we are likewise getting beaten up by Deckard because we're in Kay's headspace. So when Deckard is acting like that, we are reading it as he is a remote father who doesn't want to own up to his responsibility, who doesn't want to admit that he did something wrong, that he you know, is deliberately that he's putting up a wall because he doesn't want to be emotional again. We're reading into it all of these subtexts that we bring with ourselves to the movie, when in reality, Deckard just does not give a fuck. Like he has because no, you're right. He knows what the truth is and he knows what he had to do. So he's not. Conf conflicted by this whatsoever and then when you rewatch the movie you see that and you see the whole time that his attitude is is casual because he just doesn't fucking care he just wants this guy to go away or to be killed mm. um, but not because he's like grappling with these big existential themes because he left that behind when he said goodbye to Stalene, uh you know so many years ago what happened to the kid who put it in the orphanage was it you was long gone by then. You didn't even meet your own kid? Why? Because that was the plan. I showed them how to scramble the records, cover their tracks. Everyone had a part, mine was to leave. Then the blackout came, paved over everything. Couldn't have found the child if I tried. Did you want to? Not really. Why not? Because we were being hunted. I didn't want our child found, taken apart, dissected. Just going back to something else you said, I think something that this film does so well consistently, and I think these anatomy of a scene episodes are a good way to explore this idea, is it subtly references the first movie, but in very like clear ways, right? 
the first time you're watching this, you're not thinking this is just like Batty and Deckard, but the inverse of it, because you're just watching the film. But it feels right. Yes. It feels like it's appropriate. And then you go back and you're like, oh, wait a minute. They were in a building too. And one of them was fighting for the truth. And one of them was fighting to protect a lie or something. Or you start reading these scenes into it. And before you know it, you have a film that feels really, really tied to the first one, mm. but without being slavish to it. Yes. And that's something that just like so many movies get wrong. You know, the Star Wars sequels are a great case study in this. You and I both, uh, on the whole, don't really like them. You're a little more vociferous about it than I am. But I think one of the reasons why they don't hold up, I mean, I, I even when I liked them more when they came out, they never held up to the original trilogy at all for me, is because they don't, they don't do that. Like they are not using subtle undercurrents of themes to propel the narrative both forwards and backwards in time at the same time, right? Like they are just copying story beats and creating characters who are stand-ins for other characters. And that's great if you are if you don't have a relationship with the original material, because it doesn't matter to you. But if you do have a relationship to the original material, and the people seeing Blade Runner 2049 had the, the epitome of this because they only had one we we only had one movie for decades and we loved it so much that to give us such grace and honesty and to treat us as intelligent like that really meant a lot. And I think that's part of why this was so well received is because of how how it trusted us to make those connections mm. and it trusted us to, to have a canvas wide enough to do that ourselves. And this, this scene to me is a great example of that. And it didn't spoon feed us. It didn't say, oh, look, this is this and this and this, like so many sequels and prequels and that kind of written by lesser people do. Um, and that's a dangerous thing. Um, exposition. Exposition is so dangerous. And I think on largely, in my opinion, the system in place now, the studio system, streaming system, whatever, um, they've, I mean, and there's many, many exceptions to this, but I feel like uh, the movies that are made these days, the, the big IP films, they dumb all that way down. So everything is, oh, we're doing this because of this and this and this. And they're recounting things over and over. Whereas 2049, Michael Green, uh, Hampton Fancher, the writers really un gave the audience the benefit of a doubt. They thought, you know what? Our audience is smart. We can let them figure this out. And we did. And you mentioned something where it feels right. Like there's there's elements of Roy and of Roy Batty and Deckard in the in the building when Kay and uh, Deckard meet, but there's also elements of Kay of of Deckard and Rachel in this too. So there's so much going on. There's so many things that feel like yes, this reminds me of this and this reminds me of that without it at all retreading those things. And there is even you know the slight retread when Kay asks Deckard about the dog. Is this real? And Deckard's like, I don't know. Ask him. And of course, Deckard asked that same question to Rachel, but the dynamics of that whole setup was completely different than the dynamic of the setup between him and Kay. Um, and it again, it also begs this really great question in terms of like, and I know this isn't what the this discussion right now is about, but what is real? And he goes, I don't. He goes, is it real? I don't know. Ask him. Well, the thing is, in your space right now, of course, it's real. You know, and it's interesting to see that thrown into the mix again. And then later on in the film um, or towards the end, when Deckard is sitting with Wallace, Deckard's like, I know what's real. I know what's real. And then Kay says that earlier when he's talking to Staline, I know what's real because they don't really actually know what's real. 
in the world that we're living in, people don't know what's real and what isn't real. And that word is even suspect as well. So this scene, um, again, to your point, beautifully plays into those themes without really retreading them and asking the same questions completely new. Sometimes to love someone, you gotta be a stranger. And just as we, you know, come to wrapping here, I just want to talk for a second about ghosts, because to me, this this scene is also really a ghost story. I think in no more clear way than Rachel's ghost, right, who is just suffusing this entire sequence. And it, it it's another example in the movie where this the presence of Rachel in the events that we are watching makes her absence even more mm. striking, right? Because we are told in some oblique ways by Deckard in this, what happened? He gives us hints of what had happened 35 years ago. We know that Kay went there looking for Deckard and in looking for Deckard, hoping to find evidence of you know what happened to Rachel and hoping to understand what happened to that serial number, et cetera. So Rachel is like driving so much of this stuff by not being a part of it. And I think that's why when she finally does appear in that facsimile version, it's such a it's such a striking moment because we are conditioned to miss her by that point mm-hmm. so strongly that when she walks into our lives and she's not quite the real thing, we feel it similar to how Deckard would feel that, you know, in a, in a different way. But we can we can empathize somewhat with what he's feeling because we can recognize the unreality of it. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, to this idea of what's real and what's not. I think that that is a, just a huge theme in this film. It's also a theme that at the beginning of the sequence with the bees, right? Like that's a classic example of is, is Blade Runner telling us something or not telling us something because they appear to be living organisms, right? Like they're in an apiary, they're in a beehive, they're they're producing honey. But like why would they be there in the first place in a post-wildlife environment in the middle of an irradiated wasteland? Like how, how would bees be surviving? So we're left with these questions of like what's what's really going on mm-hmm. and what ghosts are we seeing? And there's also the, the ghosts of society and civilization pre-blackout and pre the events of that led to 2049 happening. Because and, and Decker comments on this when he talks about money exchanging hands, you know, like candy, right? He says this was a place where people came and they bought and they sold and they played and they went through money like it was rain essentially Mm -hmm. and um and what did it get them nothing like there's nothing there anymore there's just this this desiccated shell of what used to be and we see it of course with the statues outside which to me are are among the absolute most iconic things from that entire film like that the las vegas landscape with those huge you know erotic statues coming out of it like it's just it's just incredible iconography and um but it's ghostly. Like it looks like, to- it looks like it's entombed. It mm. looks like we're walking into a sarcophagus. Yes, you know? it feels like very these- Egyptian. It does, yeah. With these, especially the the way that the statues create archways and entrances to things. Mm-hmm. It's like it it feels like we're walking into something from five thousand years ago. But it wasn't like in the context of the movie. It was just from a few decades earlier. But that already it has been given to waste and to sand and to dust, and it's become this, uh, you know wasteland as T.S. Eliot would put it. So yeah, I think that the ghostliness of this sequence is another reason why it speaks to us so well. And last thing I'll say is it also conjures the ghosts of the previous movie in such subtle ways as we've been talking about that it just leads to this whole feeling of like we're watching a memory of something that we'll never get back again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I would agree. And I think that's the ghosts of 2019 in 2049 is fodder for a whole nother episode. I mean, I feel like 2049 is itself, it's it's almost 
this ghostly, not mirror image of 2019, but it's there's so many ghosts of 2019 in 2049. It's It haunts us, the viewer, in a tragic, devastating way. Yeah, and I'm excited to talk more about it. And this is a great kind of re-entry into those larger discussions. I put 2049 on a couple of days ago, and I started feeling what I felt when I watched 2019, which was comfort. I felt comforted. I felt like, okay, I'm back in, I'm back in the world that I feel comfortable in. Um, so I, it's great to have this conversation and to discuss more soon. Yeah. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for writing in. You've been giving us some really great ideas for things. Uh, I, I know I have been bad personally about keeping up with messages because it's been so crazy lately. So we're going to recommit to answering everybody and getting some more of your ideas out here. We also are about to have a guest who was a great hit on a K episode last time around. He's going to come back on. We're going to do another uh, episode with him shortly. And then maybe we can return to Anatomy of the Scene and look, for example, at Batty and Deckard's chase sequence before the soliloquy in Blade Runner and talk about how that parallels this. Because again, these movies speak to each other across the years in such beautiful and dexterous ways. So, yeah, thank you, everybody, and uh, more to come. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.